Hello, just being a pain and popping in on this side of the intro again to remind you that there are only a couple of weeks left to vote for. You've got to start somewhere in the podcast awards. If you head to podcastawards.com and click on the nominations are open banner, you'll find the show in the arts category and it's as simple as that. If you are enjoying the show, I would love it if you casted a vote. And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success with your host Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show today. I'm chatting to comedian, TV and radio host, chapstick lover and hater of talking about himself, Tommy Little. <laughs> this is going to be a good podcast, isn't it? It's going to be great. He didn't say many words, but God, he sounded chapped up. <laughs> I must say, we've also got a cup of tea that is sitting here that you've just made. Mm. And uh, we were just discussing that there is only a small window mm. that a cup of tea is drinkable. Small is too big a word. <laughs> There's 2.1. Seconds. It's burn, 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 <laughs> beautiful freezing. <laughs> Speaking of the chapstick, just yeah. quickly, this blows my mind because what? I have always felt that the chapstick is a domain of legends and men, and <laughs> no. you're correct on both counts. And it's good to be a poster man for the cause. It chaps my lips. Yeah. It, it does not smooth my lips. It makes them drier. So here's the idea that everybody throws around and, frankly, pisses me off. They're okay. like, well, they reckon the conspiracy theory is that it's got something there that actually dries your lips out. It so a la the chiropractor, it gives you immediate relief and then forces you to go back to the product just right. a short time later. But I say to that, bro, a chapstick's like $4. I can afford that. I can have one in my pocket at all times and I just use it again when my lips are dry. Yeah, but why wouldn't you just get like a Blistex or a Pawpaw, which will dry all the time? Are you addicted to the flavour? Is there a certain... This is a Blistex. Oh, that's not a chapstick then. Oh, it's not oh. the brand chapstick. <laughs> Sorry. I was on a chapstick though because I was addicted to the strawberry one. Oh, okay. See, because... this is a totally different issue. If it's a chapstick, this is a totally different conversation. If you've just got the chapstick version, but... packaged version of the Blistex, then we're fine. Well, I have done more years on the chapstick. chapstick. Uh, yes. And it was the strawberry one because when... I want someone to kiss me. I want them to feel like they're kissing a 14-year-old girl (laughs) (laughs) and be emotionally confused about what's happening. I hope you've also got a bit of impulse sprayed under your arms. I I wish I would, but my contract with Lynx Africa hasn't expired yet. Oh, of course, of course, Mm. of course. I remember spraying that on my hand as a teenager. Yep, I'd go at school, I'd sneak away and smoke a few holiday fours, and then I think, you know what, I'll cover this up perfectly. (laughs) Lynx Africa on my hands. There's nothing worse than the smell of... Of people who've tried to cover up the fact they've gone out for a ciggy yeah. and it's fooling nobody Fully. because the only thing that way you're going to get out of it is if you go and have a cigarette then you go and get those clothes dry cleaned and then you come back inside and yeah. you wash your hair yeah like a spray of the old Lynx Africa does nothing for you've got to do a shot of black sambuca in your mouth and tip back <laughs> set that on fire <laughs> yeah. to remove any of the other smells it's just <laughs> ingrained in you um so this is going to be fun because you don't like talking about yourself yeah. have you noticed that already yeah no yeah. we've talked about chapstick yeah. 15 minutes. <laughs> Let's just go through your handbag and see if we can go through everything you've got on you rather than talk about your career. You strike me yeah. as somebody who had a one-track mind about where they wanted to be. <laughs> I feel like this is what you wanted to do from very young. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. You're kind of wrong. <laughs> okay. In that I wanted to do something. I, originally, I wanted to act. Oh, right. Until I did it. Oh, yeah, I know. You know those things like 
when you go, oh, I didn't really want to act. I didn't really want to be on set and do the same scene 42 times over and stand in the cold doing nothing essentially yeah. all day. What I actually wanted to do was go to movie premieres and walk the red carpet. That's the bit that I thought, <laughs> that's what I thought acting yeah. was. Um, and so then I started to do it and I was, I was also shit at it. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. Why am I dancing around it? I was shit at it. Yeah. Um, and then I met a comedian uh, when I was doing my course and I was like, oh, I've thought about doing comedy. And from then he goes, you should do a, do a stand-up set. And from the moment I did my first stand-up set, I was like, oh, this is all I'll do. So had you thought about it before? Because I always think that kind of first time you step on stage as a stand-up, that's hard to go from never thinking about it to how do I write jokes and stand in front of you? I thought about it, but it, I certainly wasn't focused on it. Right. Like it wasn't something that I ever thought. I, I didn't go, that's definitely what I would do. But I've, I'd always had it kind of kicking around in my mind. But I reckon first seeing like Eddie Murphy mm. things and I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, that's a career. Oh He's my just goodness. talking. Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> so funny. I mean, delirious is, man, so funny. But um, when he said you should do it, I kind of, I think a lot of people when they do their first stand-up gig, they might not do another one for a few months and... They might do, say, 10 in their first year, maybe. Mm. I think in my first year I did probably 120 gigs or something. Wow. Like I was just like, oh, yeah. What was that? It. Was that first gig? What were the jokes like? Did you did they work or? Yeah, my first gig I flew because I I the audience was stacked with my mates and I did a lot of real groundbreaking stuff, really um, not cliche hacky topics at all. I did premature ejaculation jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I still remember. It was like uh, I, there was an ad kicking around at the time. It was like. It could happen to any of us and strike at any time. And I was like, any time? <laughs> like when I'm doing my washing and I'm like, better chuck these in as well. Oh, real, God, real highbrow. Sorry. And to be fair, it hasn't really changed. <laughs> it's not like, oh, God, and how different are we now? Yeah, <laughs> oh same God, stuff. I'd still do that shit. <laughs> so did you feel up there like you were comfortable and confident? Did you feel that first time? Oh, I think I might have found something I wanted. Yeah, to. I loved it. And it's a, I still have a strange thing with stand up where people will say, "Oh, you must get nervous and, and things like that." It is my only part of my life that I find really relaxing. Wow! Everything else stops, mm. and you don't have to think about all this other shit that goes on in life and things that you need to be worried about. And you can just talk to people. It's all on your side. You've got a microphone. Unless the gig's shit, like unless it's a rowdy pub and it's free and they don't know comedy's going to be on and dogs are on in the background and yeah. all that things. You, if you're at a comedy club or, you know, it's a ticketed show where it's people have come for you, it's all on your side. Yeah. All you have to do is the thing that hopefully you've prepared for and worked hard to, to, to get to the point of doing. And I'm just like, it's heaven. I feel like there's also that you don't feel like there's a pressure because the thing that scares me about comedy and being a comedian is the idea that you are saying to people, I will make you laugh. This will be funny. I think it's a pessimistic way of looking at it. I think the alternative way of looking at it is they've paid money and arrived going, I want to laugh. My goal out of this is to have a good time. Unless okay. they're the boyfriend that's been dragged along and <laughs> hates you. They want it to work, in most cases, as much as you want it to work. And in all the situations, there's anomalies, like there's corporate gigs or something, where, again, they don't know there's going to be a comedian and they just want to drink with their workmates. Yeah. And the hard thing about those gigs is, like, I get it. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not <laughs> yeah, standing totally. up there going like, why aren't they listening to me? I'm like, I wouldn't be listening to me either. <laughs> yeah. I'm really sorry, guys. This is a shit sandwich for all of us. <laughs> Do you think that optimism, though, from an audience always happens at every gig, but bar the ones where you've been dragged along? Or is it just when, like, you've got a certain level of profile now, people have seen your work, they like, they're obviously coming to your show because they already like you. So I think when you're sitting in, an, in front of, standing in front of an audience like that, yeah. Surely that's a nicer, more optimistic audience to be in front than, say, those early gigs. Or have you always felt like... It definitely gets easier, but also when I... I mean, I I was a Monty for when I started doing Comedy Festival. I would fly for hours and hours on the street. And so usually I'd be playing to rooms of 30, sometimes 50 people. Like capacity would be about 50. Mm. And usually the only people that would have come are people that I've met in the street and I've convinced through whatever means, you know, please come and see my show. I'm new at comedy and I appreciate you coming along. I hope you have fun, all this shit. And so usually then they're sitting there and they've already met you you know, and right. again, they, they're they also looking around and they're thinking, shit, if this doesn't go well, I'm stuck in essentially a cupboard with this kid for an hour. <laughs> yeah. So they kind of want it to go well as well. I'm also speaking like I haven't had shit gigs. I've had horrible gigs. Do they, they must <coughs> surely break you in a small way. I mean, not enough to not, you know, stop you from getting up and going on the next day. But in a way, that's, I don't know, that, that's the part of it that terrifies me. You give a shit less though. Oh, you do. Does it does it water off a back, duck's back for you? Is it doesn't um, sometimes the only gigs that ever bother me now mm. is if I I've either met someone new or someone comes to see me do stand up that hasn't seen me before, mm. and if it's bad, then I I start to sweat and freeze because I'm like, oh, they know this is what I do every night, yeah, and they right. walk away thinking. How does he get up there and do that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, how is he still doing that? What kind of maniac? Yeah. So take me through the trajectory of, of how you got from from the very beginning to here. So when you were a kid, did the was that the acting was the acting thing big from when you were a kid, or did you ever have any other dreams of anything? Uh, oh, I mean, first we do need to point out that here as well is sitting in. We're in a cupboard. Still. We're in a cupboard still. This is the old station. Did you know this was an old stationery cupboard? Yeah, I feel that's why I feel like so much. There's so much magic in here because I love a stationery cupboard. It's my favourite place in the whole office, and I was devastated the last place I worked at where they put a lock. They'd monitor you every time you had to go to the receptionist and ask for the pass. And if you'd asked for it too much, because I just could, t- I could steal all the goddamn stationery I could get my hands on. I that, love it. That's a real um, like attitude problem at a workplace where they decide. You know what? We're losing too many bicks. <laughs> yeah. If they can't trust you with the post-it notes, then the issues are much greater Fully. than just the post-it notes. Yeah. It's so, the point in a relationship where if you're going through your partner's phone, it's, <laughs> it's already over, regardless yeah. of whether you're You know they're anything. cheating. Yeah. They are cheating. Like, yeah, it's eventually going to yeah. come out that they are cheating. Yeah. But that feeling you have in your gut was completely justified. <laughs> um, so we are in the cupboard that you do the show with Carrie mm. Bickmore uh, for the Hit Network, yes. which is also housed in the building that the project happens in, uh, yes. which you also work on. So this is the here that we're talking about. Yes. So way back in the beginning, did, yeah, were there any other dreams or was it just kind of acting when you were little? No, when I was little, it was basketball. Oh, I love this. That's okay. all I wanted to do. I was a tiny kid 
and there was a basketballer who was five foot three in the NBA called Muggsy Bogues, mm-hmm. and um, he was my idol. And every year for Christmas or or birthdays, I'd get a different Muggsy Bogues basketball card, <laughs> um, which in hindsight. A Michael Jordan one would have been a lot more valuable today. <laughs> um, that is okay. You're at the trading events going, Muggsy, anyone? Guys, yeah, guys, yeah. I got Keith wants to Muggsy. Swap a Muggsy. Anybody else got a Muggsy? <laughs> That's bullshit. Um, and I, a few things held me back from that, just little things like a, a lack of height, ability, skill, determination, <laughs> dedication, <laughs> those things. Did you even, I mean, were you playing, but you just didn't ever get oh, to the Corbett. level? But the disrespect... <laughs> Is palpable. I feel uh, like you had dreams, but you were just playing basketball in your driveway. Is that what happened? Uh, state schoolboys. Oh, okay. Uh, squad. Oh, didn't make the team. Uh, Vic Metro state schoolboys squad. I think probably under twelves that was. And yeah, I got cut from the squad and didn't make the team. And that's probably the pinnacle. Right. Mm. Oh, were you bummed at that time? Uh, yeah. Oh, dreams shattered. So then what was it? What was the dream after basketball died? Well, then I hit 14. The dream probably died at that 14 because I discovered um, drinking and trying to pick up girls. Uh-huh. And at that stage it was playing, when you played rep basketball, it was Friday nights and training was early Sunday mornings. And, you know. For, that was killed for the social life. Oh, worst. Right. Mm, so yeah. I, you know, did the natural thing and I kind of gave basketball away. Well, I just started playing less and less and um, put my hair into dreadlocks. And proceeded to be the greasiest, grossest, pubescent boy ever, I think. Ooh. Yeah. Were you just, were were you f- sort of planning at that stage on being a bit of a drifter? Was that where you were? Yeah. You, I met some hippie mates and kind of started smoking a bit of pot and, right. you know, yeah, drinking warm Melbourne, Melbourne bitter cans out of backpacks and skating and. Were your parents concerned about you at that point? Nah, because I've got a brilliant situation where my, um, my brother, who is a is a beautiful man, but he's he's a bit of a mess, mm. and so I'll never. Oh, you're less of a mess. You'll yeah. always be less of a mess. Yeah. Oh, that's helpful, isn't it? It's great. It's great. <laughs> that's really great. Even by the time, like my dad was quite scared. Like my dad's name is Ian. Uh, I call him the Enforcer, mm. and he was kind of kind of scary for my brother and the like, you know, the authority figure. The time I came along, he was just. just Tired. Oh, right. Yeah. So just, you just got away with whatever you wanted to do. Pretty much. So then when did you get back on the sort of rails again? Or? I didn't really go off. It wasn't like I was. But but then I just kind of did that for a few years. Mm. Enrolled in drama, but like at a uni, like a shit drama course. Okay. Failed that for three. For I, It ended up taking me five and a half years to do a three-year a course. drama course. Yeah, which isn't even drama. Like I, I failed things like choir. I failed. Oh, Tommy. Yeah. How can they mark you on that? They, just attendance. And my mate, oh. told, she told me she was ticking me off everything. And then I got to the, like the last one because you had to go, it was compulsory. And I looked at the book. She hadn't marked me down for one thing. Why did she say that? Because she's <gasps> like, I thought you'd never come. I thought you'd never know. And I'm oh, like, well, they fa- a, yeah. yeah, I know. What a dick move. I know. <laughs> oh, that's so mean. Just say you're not doing it. Like, what are the stakes? What <laughs> are the I'll stakes? i someone of else that? to. Yeah. There's people here that can tick. The stakes are higher of not doing it and then you coming to the last class and realising you've been lying the whole time than just saying, no, I don't feel comfortable with ticking you off. You should come to class. Yeah, I know. Oh, and you never know the, the stress of a live performance when you've got to sing three songs that you've never heard before. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a position at the back back? 
I'm actually in a choir. Um, Are you? Yeah, yeah. I I used to love. I was in choirs as a kid, and so, but I because I can't make all of the rehearsals. I've had the same thing because we do like a mid year and an end of year. Is your friend digging you off? Because here's here's, here's the rub. They're not. But I've done the same thing where you're standing there and you're just sort of just hoping that if you open and close your mouth enough, it's going to look like you kind of have the words. You're a surprise packet. Yeah. You're you're not in the age group for choir. Like my mum's in a choir. My mum's in a gospel choir Yeah. because she's old and weird. Yeah, right. yeah, but that's what bummed me out was you, you can, you've only got like you can either be quite in choir at school or in choir yeah. as um, in the gay and lesbian and choir yeah, or yeah. the old ladies <laughs> choir. And so a friend of mine who I had done stuff with at uni, she put together a choir for like people like me who were, you know, normal human beings. Who, who are just weirdos <laughs> who are wearing a normal little shell jacket of a, of a skin. Exactly. Who bought a pair of skin tight jeans to try and blend in with the cool kids yeah. and really are just a bunch of losers underneath. Um, <laughs> Um, so, right, so you felt, and so that was the, you moved. Hang on. What? No, we're not, it's not about me, mate. Well, you can't just go, you can't just casually say, I'm in a choir. Yeah, but what else is there to mine? What songs are you singing? We sing all kinds of songs. Like what? Religious stuff? No, we can we can do a bit of religious stuff, but it's not a religious choir. We've done a bit of Sia. We've done some Latvian right. can, numbers. Have you? We've d- yeah, we've, d- we've done the whole depth. Because you re- just want to make sure that as an audience member, nobody enjoys the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you might like, like one, but definitely not all of them. No one has this eclectic taste. That's, that's, that you thought I had a pessimistic view of the audience. My view is that there's a little something for everyone. Yeah. That's what I think. But the whole is for nobody. <laughs> um, so that is the acting course that you then drifted into comedy from. Yes, the only right. good thing that came out of that course was meeting a guy who... Who told you to get into comedy. Did you ever work and do a job anywhere doing anything else before you got up on stage? Like like crappy jobs? Yeah, any kind of other jobs? Oh, you were looking at probably one of the longest serving members of the Boost Juice (laughs) alumni. (laughs) Hat sideways, apron sideways. What supplements do you want today? Real Quit. Real <laughs> next level, like people walking in, like, oh, I'm hungover. Where does this guy get his energy from? Oh my God. <laughs> and I'm like, what energy? What do you guys mean? Oh my God, were you out last night? Where'd you go? Okay. <laughs> That's just because you've had a couple of the ginseng shots in your, uh, Big in your time. juice. So, how long did you work there for? Oh, 21 years or something. <laughs> no, from like when you could first work there, so like 15, maybe, yeah, just before 15, to like, and I went away and did stuff, but then I'd always come back and it, it'd just be there. So right. to maybe 22, maybe 21, 22, like and too when- old. Like when you go into a boost juice and you're like, <laughs> that bike hasn't got acne anymore. I don't think he should be here. And he doesn't have a manager's badge. This is concerning. <laughs> yeah. What's the bike with a beard on the blender? <laughs> so uh, so you were still doing, when did you start getting into comedy? When was the first gig? How old were you? Uh, about that same time, about kind of 21, 22. Must have been 22, I reckon. Right. 21, 22. So you start doing gigs and what's the what's the movement then until – because you were also <coughs> writing and on the Studio A mm. on Channel 31. And so, I started Black Thunders around the same time. Oh, I, Icy Cold Cans Coke. This is a great way to get into the business. It the is. And I think it still is. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure. I know the last one – I haven't – I don't really know what the Thunders are doing at, at, at Hit and stuff, but I know Casanova's a – they kind of brought them back. They're still kind of involved. Yeah. There's a weird thing. If people, if you don't know what we're talking about, it's driving the cars around for the radio stations. Those promo cars you see, and 
back in the day you used to do crosses. So you used to go, hey guys, we're down here at Fountain Gate. We're handing out ice cold cans of Coke and we've got the new Justin Timberlake single as well to give out. We've also got an iPad to give away. Get down here, boom. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they do that anymore. I don't know. I think they do some places. Right. My, my memory, because about 2004, I was working on the Central Coast doing breakfast radio at CFM, and Ed Cavalli, who I had gone to university with, yes. rang me to ask me how he could get into radio, and I suggested that he goes via the Black Thunders, yes. and then I went away overseas for two years, and by the time he got back, he's working with Tony Martin, and I said, well, Jesus, you you really took the path up there, but it is a good way to get in I don't know where I don't know either whether they'd st- uh, still do them now so how well, the weird loop the weird full circle in that story mm. is that when I started doing Black Thunders and Rock Patrol so when you work for hit it's it's Fox and Triple M yes. or whatever your Fox is over in other states and at that time Ed Cavalier was doing Get This with Tony Martin and Richard Marslin yes and Rich became he was such a beautiful man. I was doing community radio at the time, and this guy did not need to do this at all, but I was brash and young. And some of the first things I did when I got to station, I walked in there and I got to know, not so much Tony, but Ed and Rich, and I just said, I was like, hey, I do community radio, and I really like radio. Would you listen to some of my stuff and give me some feedback? Rich would sit down with me, give me notes on my community radio show. Like He was I, a beautiful man. I only think how lovely that is now that I have a job in radio and I mean no one's asked me to do it which speaks volumes (laughs) (laughs) but I also think I I like to think that I definitely would but I you know that's going above and beyond yeah there's a lot of people that wouldn't let's be honest there's a lot of people that wouldn't I also think you should just ask yeah I didn't even realize so at that same time Hamish and Andy were just like starting kind Mm -hmm. of and and just starting to be this giant show Mm. I just said, can I chat with Hamish and Andy about radio? Again, I'm really keen on radio, do community radio. They sat down with me for an hour yeah. and just talked about, you know, here's some advice and stuff. And and again, I would neither of those things would have happened, mm. but I was just too dumb to know that that wasn't what you do. And so I just got a job as a Thunder. I was like, hey, by the way, you know the biggest <laughs> talent on the network. Yeah, can I chat with them? <laughs> Yeah, but that's good to get them at the early stage of the, you know, of the uphill. They were big enough to say no. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. but, I mean, you're not going to say no, really, because it's, it's weird if you're outside the building kind of knocking on them going, can I just talk to you guys? Yeah. But if you're inside the building, it makes sense. You, you're right. You do have to have the balls to sort of ask the question. So well, you were working in the Thunders uh, yeah. and driving the cars, and you're doing Channel 31 at the same time. Doing Channel 31. I'm doing, um, I'm just starting doing stand-up as well. And I'm doing uh, Sin Radio, which oh. is like a youth community radio right. show. So then when did – how did that morph into something more mainstream, more commercial? What was your first sort of toe dip there? How, how did you get there? I – Because I feel like for me, I feel like you were – Nowhere to be seen and then everywhere around the time of This Week Live, which I know there's a big gap in between that. Maybe You're not you were, far off, though. But I felt like all of a sudden everyone was like, Tommy, look, Tommy, look, Tommy. Oh, my God, Tommy Lil's everywhere. He's, like, hosting two shows. And where did this guy come from? Yeah. So And I was acting then. This is how weird life was at, oh. this, at that stage. So I then did probably three years of both community radio and um, – uh, community TV, mm-hmm. and I finished up by hosting Studio A for f- 
for umpteen buddy seasons. And then I was still doing Thunders stuff. I was still doing stand-up stuff. And then this competition came up to be like this spring carnival spruker thing, a face of the spring carnival. You couldn't enter if you work for the radio station. And I was like, well, I keep trying to go in somewhere with this radio station, but they're not giving me anything. So I quit. So I could enter this competition. Oh, wow. And then won the competition. Oh, God, lucky it paid off. Yeah, and there was 10 grand, which was more money than I'd ever had in my life. Yeah. And you got dress, like you got, got suits and, and stuff, and I had the best month ever. And then... So what um, was the job? Just you had to... Well, they didn't know. But because I was doing stand-up and I had ideas and stuff, I said to them, what about this? I go to every different race day. We film a different video at every one. Great. And they just went with it. They're just like, yep, sure. Having ideas, it's the key. Having ideas, big mm. time. And then kind of out of nowhere, I got offered fill-in breakfast and weekend breakfast for Nova. So I was filling in for Husey whenever he was away. It was Husey and Kate. And so I was filling in for Husey and Kate when they were off and I'd, I'd host Brecky with different uh, co-hosts. From a spring carnival Thing. Not from that, but that was like then because I didn't go to work back at the radio station because my manager at the time was like, look, I actually think it's worse you staying there in the fold. They won't look at you. Was your stand-up doing quite well at that stage? I was just starting to kind of kick off. Okay, right. And I did a my first gala spot. And my first gala spot still to this day was the thing that went has gone most bonkers of anything I've, I've done. Right. Off the back of my gala spot, I sold out my whole run before I started at the comedy festival and I started putting on extra shows in like, 400 seaters when I'd only my, my venue was only 100 seats and I sold them all out in the in the week and then put on all these extra shows and then Brecky kind of wow. kicked off from there and then I just got this offering of a TV show which we never thought was going to kick off and within about a month that turned into hosting two TV shows and getting an acting job with the ABC and what was the ABC gig? I was Claudia Carvin's piece of meat on the side <laughs> in a show called Time of Our Lives, which was an amazing show. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that all happened and then it kind of, I don't know, it was weird. But it, it was weird. sort of all happened like from the, as somebody who had not seen you before, it felt like everybody was going, who's this Tommy Little guy? I know. Like you were everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. That, I think was... Uh, that combined with the timing of it was people think Channel Ten's in dark days now. Mm. That was Channel Ten's really dark days, yeah, and I, right. it was a really uh, I did too much, and and I don't think it was good doing that all at the same time. But then I got signed to do Brecky, and I had two really happy years doing Brecky Radio with Michelle Laurie. Why do you uh, think it wasn't good doing t- that much? Do you just think you were overexposed, or e- no? I think I didn't. Have the hours in a day in the day to put in enough work into each of them. Yes, um, I was too green to host uh, one one of the shows, which is called A League of Their Own, which is an awesome format. But they f-ed it forty two different ways here, mm. and we didn't realise until there was all this commu- bad communication in it, and we made a really funny show, mm. and then we found out that afterwards that they were cutting it for a family-friendly time slot. We didn't know that. Oh. And if I'd had more experience, I would have been up in arms and right. really fought for it. But because I was new, I didn't know, and I, I just nodded like a dickhead. I'm like, okay, maybe this will work, and it completely bastardized the whole thing. Mm. The cut, they could only use the games then, because all the jokes, we because we thought we were writing for a post-watershed. Yeah. 
Right. Time slot. But so, it's hard when you're starting, not that you were starting out then, but it's hard when you don't have as much experience or as big a relationship with a network or you're just, you know, sort of getting your desperate feeling. desperate to please. You want to please. If, you know, you don't feel like you can go into the executives and go, um, guys, I really think, you're like, who am I? You, so I get why you wouldn't sit down and have that conversation. And in hindsight, you go, gosh, I should have stood up for yourself. But if you had your time again, you wouldn't because you just, you want to do what they need you to do in a way. I know. Yes, I know. But with more experience, mm. if they'd tried to do what they did with that show again, I would openly drop support of the show and I would, you know. Yeah. There are some, you, you, you get to the point where you realise putting something bad out oh, it is more detrimental yes. than putting nothing out. Yes, 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 absolutely. And particularly, I love the show. Like, in the UK, it, it was when Corden hosted it. I, I mean... <laughs> It's like a career show. Mm. <clears throat> so I was really excited about doing this show and getting to do this show and then it just got oh, that's a bummer. beyond belief and it was like... How long did it last? One season. Here. Yeah. We did one season. Yeah, right. And how long was how long did This Week Live go for? <laughs> one season. Right. And how many eps is that? 13. Yeah. See, right. I think. And actually This Week Live, again... I, this Week Live was a great show. I actually stand by This Week Live and I think it was great. I think, again, we were unlucky at, at a time. The network and I think there was this idea that there there couldn't be more than one panel show and it was kind of, have you been paying attention started at the same time? Mm-hmm. And I think it was just out, out of those two. And have you been paying attention is, is a great show. But again, mm-hmm. I'm really proud of This Week Live. I think it was a, a ripper show. Was it stocked with all the people that were on the same management? Was that put together by your management? Um, is Michelle with Creative? Uh, Gleason certainly is, and yeah. Dave Thornton certainly is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I thought, I, I thought, I think I remember at the time somebody going, "Oh, that's really smart managing, just putting all of your your talent together and pitching a show." That's how it it sounded it sounded in the business, like it had come about. But I don't know whether that's true or not. Yeah, I mean, you you. Right, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, that's good. It's, <laughs> the, the, it's the the pros of having a manager that is in TV. Yeah, it's really smart. So, and how did how did things change for you uh, in terms of personally and professionally when you kind of blew up, so to speak, and were everywhere? Did you know? Obviously, neither of those shows worked, but that hasn't affected you in any way. After of course, that, it has. What do you mean? Well, I mean personally, yes, but it well, hasn't affected you career-wise. Yeah, of course, it has. No, it hasn't. Yeah, definitely. You f- you surely feel like it's affected you more because I mean, if it had truly affected you, you wouldn't be working. I think it was all I thought about for a long time. Is the how they how they didn't work? Yeah. But how long ago was that? Oh. Five years ago now. Yeah, right. But that, ha- but you know, it's not like you're sitting down on the corner, you know, shuffling your hat out for change. Like you're still working. Yeah, yeah. And you've done breakfast, and you do stuff on that. Like you've done, you've done a lot of stuff. This no, you don't. Into a weird counselling system. I know. Right? I feel like you need to be. Do you want a hug? <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, back to that management thing. <laughs> You, do you want to avoid this entirely? We don't have to talk about anything you don't want to talk about. I'm not trying to be investigative reporter 60 Minutes here and delve deep into your past. If I'm touching a bit that's like going ouchy, then we'll leave it alone. No, no. I brought it up. I I just, just think constantly had – I think there's just very simple choices I could have made that would have meant 
one of those shows would still be going. But did you have good. the power at the time to make of those not. choices? Exactly. Of not. So you can't beat yourself up about it. You, of course you, didn't you have can. Any, you can no. beat yourself up over about whatever you want to be. Yeah, but there's no point about it because you couldn't. But have when done there ever about have it? to be a point to it? No, you just got to leave that and go. You okay. can be miserable for misery's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's not useful. You've did. Too- Why does it have to be useful? None of what we do is useful. No, I know, but this I- is not useful. We're two humans sitting in a cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no mud that's stuck to you. The mud's on the inside. Oh, you I don't feel know like the true. mud's on. The, you feel the mud, but I don't think it looks. I'd tell you if you looked muddy, but muddy. I don't think. No, I muddy think you mate. feel muddy, but I don't think the mud has stuck. I um, back to the management thing. Okay, quickly. please. I think there was. I think the reason I ended up with uh, the manager that I was with was because I I sent round, which I think I still don't know if. Anybody has done this. I said I made up a flashy like CV, like I was applying for a job, and I sent round to different managers. And Kev met me, and I thought I was. He's like, I got this, and uh, I thought I, I was like, oh great, I'm signed with the best. This is who I really want to be with. Mm. And um, at the end, I was like, so good. He's like, oh no, we're not signing you. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, no, you're too new, but you've got to leave your other. I was with an agent at the time. He's like, you got to leave your agent, and we'll look. We'll, we'll keep an eye on you. I was like, okay. And then like a year and a bit later, they signed me or something. Uh, but yeah. But again, it came from literally just asking. Yeah, right. That's so you just sent in like, ta- so you must have had tape of, of what you. Nah, I treated it like a job and I made a flashy CV, like, pa- like paper. Paper? Yeah. Oh, you didn't even have any footage of your gigs or nah. any of that kind of stuff? No. Nah. You just said, I am funny, trust me. <laughs> yeah, I'd done a couple of comedy festival shows. I sent credits to every single little thing I'd been on and yep. Oh, wow. Yep. And they, oh, that's cool. At least they met with you. But there is nothing – well, there is a lot of things worse than – but there's there's that magical moment where you sit down and somebody, a manager's gotten you in the office and they're like, we really want to talk to you. And then you sit down and they have this chat and we're like, we love what you do. And, right, and it goes on and on and on and everybody's <laughs> pulling their d- in the room and they're like, oh, it's magical. And then we'll give you a call and then a week later there's no call and then two weeks later it's like, we just don't think you know, we we're just not sure where to place you. And it's like, go away. Yeah, go, go away. away. Like, go away. There's no need for us to – you don't have to yank my chain. We don't have to have this conversation. Everything's fine. Um, yeah, it's a very, very weird situation. It's also a very great um, – I think it's a real – you can get a barometer of how serious someone is about um, actually doing stuff pretty quickly, which is if they don't tell you what they want to talk about, but they say they just want to meet for a coffee, they got nothing. <laughs> they got nothing. Yeah. They're bored and they don't have anything to fill their days, so they want to spend an hour with you talking about this thing that will never happen. Yeah. And they're like, you know, I've been thinking about this. And you're like, yeah, and you're going to keep thinking about it. You're never going to actually do it. Yeah, so true. So when you shuffled into radio, did you enjoy the brekkie hours? Um, I love the job. Mm. I don't think anyone enjoys the hours. Mm. I don't know. Brendan Jones I spoke to on this podcast, and he said the best thing about the industry is the hours. And he's been doing breakfast for years. Has he got kids? Yeah. That's why. People with kids love it because your kids wake you up at that time anyway. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I was fine because I'd gig every night and then do it. So I was getting like... You know, some people go to bed at eight o'clock and stuff. I was, I was, I'd, I'd try and be 
in bed by I'd aim for ten thirty, and then I'd be up at four thirty, and then I'd try and get an hour's nap during the day. Yeah, I was the same when I was working, Bricky, and I just yeah. couldn't work it out. And I was a zombie, a miserable, sad, tired zombie for the yeah. entire time I worked it. And I people you didn't like, enjoy any of it. I loved the job too. I yeah. loved the job, but I only loved the job when I was working with people that I loved. And I right. had a few episodes where I didn't have that, and then it was a hefty, hefty grind. But for um, for a, you know, a few of the jobs where I really had good partners, like that time in CFM, I was working with Paddy Gerard. He was a gem of a human being. Yeah. So days were, you know, you, you're running on adrenaline in the morning, but it just zaps you for the rest of the day. Yeah. And you just feel like half a human. Yeah. And everyone's and when, going out to dinner and you're like, can't guys. <laughs> well, even when I felt fine, I, I'd, I'd like go out to dinner on a Friday night was a big doozy. Mm. And like at eight o'clock, I'd just realize, oh, hang on, I'm an asshole. I've just snapped at my friends like three times yeah. and I never usually yeah. do that. I'm like, oh, I would yeah. tell you I'm fine, but I, my eyes are falling out of my head and I'm being a real <laughs> Time for a nappy bite. <laughs> That's it. See you guys. See you guys. Um, so how did the project stuff come along for you? Again, I made This Week Live with the project boss. Oh, right. Craig so Campbell. it was the same. Yeah. Ah, he made this that as well. Okay. Yes. Um, and so met him through that and then he is just a... Uh, you know, I owe a lot to that man. He's been so supportive, and I just, I just have dabbled in here for years now. Mm. I've never, you know, I just do a thing kind of every week or so and fill in whenever Top Dog's away, and you know, it's great. <laughs> I go, oh, B team's off the bench. Hey, here we go. <laughs> a few little jokes for you. Back on the bench. <laughs> but it's a great. I mean, it's still a pretty high profile spot to to work on. I don't think it's great, and it's heaven to work on. Yeah, I it love is, it. It is such a it's good the show. Only it's the only show on TV where there's live jokes. Yeah, live. That's unbelievable. I know the team's also really delightful yeah. too. I it's always like when I first started here, I was like, you always there's that trepidation when you walk in the door and you're like, oh god, you're on somebody else's turf. Are mm. they going to be? And some people aren't nice, you know. And they were just so <laughs> delightful. I was like, oh my god, yeah, that's amazing. And you get to work with the best. It's like, um, yeah. I was lucky in you know when you said you you found radio hard when you work with people you didn't necessarily like or love working with i'm lucky enough that i've never i've only ever got to work with people that i love and also that have been way better than me oh you're getting lucky. to do two years with michelle laurie mm. that makes you a, a better person a smarter person a funnier person mm. and then you know now with carrie it's the same situation and on the desk i mean just getting to perform with waleed and carrie it's like oh just learn yeah just learn yeah, a bit, learn so a bit from the best. Totally. Um, well, it, what what about your worst gig? You talked a little bit about that a while ago, and maybe it's back in the days of the the comedy, early comedy days. Is there <laughs> any gig that sort of sticks out as, oh god, that was a flipping disaster? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As his eyes glaze over, <laughs> PTSD kicks in. I was doing the Adelaide Fringe. Oh, I like that that uh, festival. I do too now. <laughs> it's taken many years to like it, but now I love it. And I um, I was doing a show and Kevin White came to see it. And this was just shortly after I'd sent him my CV and and he told me he was watching me. He is your now manager. Yes. Yep. And the Don of comedy. Yes. Um, and I found out he was coming to see the show and I panicked and I was like, oh, I'd sold, uh, I think I'd sold one ticket. 
um, maybe for that night. I was in a 35-seater and I think I saw one ticket. And so I went around that day and I um, I just spoke to all the businesses in the area and I offered their staff free tickets. I lied. I said it was my first time in Adelaide. I'm trying to build an audience. I think you really like the show and, and I think you'll come back next year if you know, so I'd like to give you some free tickets. And I like were, this. You're very proactive. This is a great lesson. This is good. Yes, keep going. So I got there and there was a full room, which was great. I thought this is going to be great. And I was going through a phase, which I'll never go through again, of wearing button-up shirts on stage. I think I was trying to look older or something or trying to, you know, but it was like a, a kind of grey shirt and it was a shitty old art studio that had no air conditioning. It was like a 40-degree day. It was so f- hot in there as soon as i walked out on stage i looked out and people were already fanning themselves with their little flyer and they're hating being there i try a few jokes i'm dying like i'm going so bad i'm not even getting anger from the audience i'm just getting tired indifference like not a not literally not a laugh and then all that i'm thinking is i can see kev at the back of the room and i'm thinking why why is this like out of all the like i'm I'm, I can't believe this is happening. And then just when it can't get any worse, I look down and my shirt has, my sweat patches have met in the middle. <laughs> my, <laughs> on this like dark gray shirt, these sweat patches have looked like, I look like, you know when a woman puts on a t-shirt after being in the pool and she gets the boob sweat from her bikini? I've got like that sweat that's kind of cre- encroaching in, like a meat in the middle. And then just when I'm thinking, how could this possibly get any worse? I step on my microphone cord and it unplugs my mic and the cord hits the ground. That gets the only laugh that I get for the whole show. And I looked down at the cord and I honestly thought, I was like, just run. (laughs) Just run. Just drop the mic, run out of the room, and don't stop running until you've stopped thinking about this. Just go. Never do comedy again. Which, from what I've gleaned over the last hour, is about five years that it takes you to let go of something in your mind. So you would have been running a long time. (laughs) <laughs> long time, um, and I of course didn't. I put the mic back in and did another thirty of the most excruciating minutes of comedy I've ever done. And at the end, um, I spoke to him, and he was lovely. He didn't mince words. He didn't say it was good. He just said, um, "Don't worry, I've seen plenty of great comedians do horrible gigs." Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I was like, you think I'm great? And he's like, no. <laughs> but I have seen. <laughs> I'm just telling you about other things I've seen. <laughs> I'm just making conversation, mate, because otherwise this is awkward. Yeah, this is going that worse than terrible. your gig. <laughs> um, now, I know you have to get rocking and rolling soon, so um, we're coming to the end here. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about the industry? The best thing is just being a part of it. It's a, It's not a real job, and it's you're f-ing lucky if you get mm. to do it it's silly and if you ever complain about it go f- yourself there's people out there that <laughs> yeah. you know dig trenches in the in in the rain and, oh, yeah, totally. and do you know all types of, although there is times i always think packing boxes would be awesome there is well there isn't a physical element to it or a mundane element to it or any of those kind of things there's an excitement to it that makes you feel yes we are very very lucky to do this job but there is a personal insecurity element, a self-esteem element that isn't necessarily present if you had just gone and been a lawyer or a doctor. You know, there's a there's something working that, in a factory. I honestly yeah. like the idea of working in a factory. Yeah, but um, that is, and that's the the worst bit about it. If somebody sees something that you do, 
If somebody if somebody's making you a smoothie and they stuff it up, they go, you go, he's not good at his job. You don't go, he's a wit and he should die. Yeah. Where in comedy in particular, if you're trying to make people laugh and you get it and they don't find it funny, they don't think you're bad at your work. They think you're a horrible human for some being. Yeah. For some reason and, and that you should, you know. And I think, and the worst part about it, that's not the worst part about it. I think the worst part about it is it doesn't stop in terms of, there's no clocking off. There's no, I think about comedy and jokes and things every waking hour of every single day and the fear that it's all going to, that I'm going to say on air and it's all it's done all over. Mm. is ever present. And stronger minds than mine would be able to compartmentalize that and put that to one side and say you're being irrational, but I don't. And mm-hmm. that's swirling forever <laughs> <laughs> what do you feel is is you know obviously you've got in your mind you've got plenty to go you don't feel like you you know you there's plenty more you want well, to achieve you know what it's just i've accepted that i'll just never do anything else so i don't know that i'm i don't have a vision board and i don't have a set out things of you know in five years i want to go to america and do a tonight show or blah blah blah, blah. i've just accepted that this is all i'll ever do so just keep doing it but I, that, but that's not a bad thing. No, I know. But what I mean is, I don't. I'm not. I'm aspirational in the sense that I just want to keep doing this. But I'm not aspirational in the sense I haven't mapped out a career path. And I, I think haven't that's got, dangerous because you know. the control you have over that happening the way you dreamed it to happen is so small. It's Completely. almost impossible. But if you just say, "I'm going to be the best at this job I have in front of me right now," total control. Completely, you can do that. And it also comes back to the basic question of, do you want to be? Um, successful to outside eyes or do you want to be happy? And I still don't know the answer to (laughs) that question. (laughs) Do you think that the thing that's gotten you to this point has been your persistence or your ability to kind of just dog it a bone? No, but I also, I also don't see the point I'm at as where I want to be success wise. Mm. So I don't see it as a good point yet. But you are at a good point. From the outside looking in, you're at a great point. You are not, and I totally get that because if you are an ambitious person and you have drive and all those kind of things, that even if you were the CEO of the universe, you'd still go, what else can I do? I'm yes. not at the top yet. You get that. You just, you can't drop that and say, okay, and now I rest and I'm done. But for you to have gotten to this point, which for people at the very beginning, you're like, man, how could I ever get in the project? Or how could I ever get a sell out a show or a, you know, a comedy gig? Or how could I ever do host my own TV show? Or I'll go, get on breakfast radio to get to this point today what do you do you think it has been your persistence do you think it's been right place right time do you think i don't know (laughs) again it kind (laughs) of comes back to my thing of like i'll just keep doing this so i'm not so which maybe answers your question as as yes but i also look back at the idea of doing it again it does get exhausting once you think about what you've done. And at the time, oh. you wouldn't have done it any different. Like, you still would have knocked on doors in Adelaide and gotten people at shops to have free tickets to your thing and kept on flyering and kept on doing stuff and getting up and going on. But when you get to a certain point, you go, you can look around and go, far out. Oh, the idea of going. No, again. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll go pack boxes. Yeah. That's why, yeah, even Edinburgh and stuff is daunting. Cause you're oh, like, yeah. You know, I've been there once and I spent four hours every day flying in the rain and it was like, oh, that's right. This isn't far enough removed from my memory of, in Australia that I'm not ready to do this again. Mm. Did you do well at Edinburgh? Or? No. No. Really. I, I did a split show with um, <clears throat> a comedian. It was, a, was um, I mean, it, we did well in terms of 
we got crowds and stuff and it was fine. But you kind of only do Edinburgh to do it a few years in a row and build yeah. on your audience and stuff. And I got a job and couldn't go back the next year and, yeah. It's also like there's something like 2,000 shows a day. Like it's you sow oh. a small fish in a big pond, you know. It's yeah. it's tough um, eking out a, a place there. Uh, all right, final five questions. You yeah. Be, your biggest regret. Um, talking about the two shows earlier, not not focusing on one of those easily. Okay, your dream gig. <laughs> my dream gig. You know what? The, can it be a gig I've done? Sure. Because my dream gig was the comedy festival gala. Because I grew up watching that, and I was like always amazed. It always made me laugh so much. And so then getting to do, and I've done a f- quite a few now, um, just getting to do a comedy festival gala, knowing that. As a kid, I watched that. Mm. Was like, oh, for me, that's the kind of moment you can go, because comedy is so subjective. You can you, you can say you're a comedian after you've done one gig. Who gives a? F-? But for me, that was the moment that I was like, oh, I'm a comedian. Like yeah, I, right. you know, it's it's undeniable, regardless of whether you like me or not. Yeah, I've done the comedy festival. Carl. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. Those moments where you can actually see something because everything that you're doing is kind of just disappearing into the ether. You're standing in front of a crowd. You're making jokes. It disappears. You're on the radio. It disappears. Then that's something tangible that you can go, I did that. I've done it. Yeah, I've done it. Look back. I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is there a big idea that you uh, haven't got up yet that you want to do? Yeah, the the six-pack is a – it's a fake stomach. That is actually a cooler bag and holds six tinnies. <laughs> and so you can wear it and sneak tinnies into sporting events. Someone will take that and use it, so you better patent it. Or... You know what happened? <laughs> what? I had an invention idea. It was called Duna Holes. And I had this idea about 10 years ago. And it was because if I try and read in bed, my chest would get cold because you put your arms out of your Duna and your chest gets cold. And so I wanted to invent a Duna that had two resealable holes in it. So you could poke your arms through the holes, hold your book, have your Duna all the way up to your chest, Duna holes. Snuggie. Ah! Then the snuggie comes uh, out. <laughs> Got to be quick on these things. I think you should have come up with a better name for it than Duna Holes. No, does what it says on the packet. <laughs> um, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Madly trying to invent stuff in a in a, a back shed somewhere. Do you think that's maybe something in your future? Do you have a lot of ideas? Are you yep. just yeah constantly spouting ideas? Yeah, and I love all invention. Like I I do like. Things that, that change the world, but I also like little dumb things that I'm like, ah, oh, shit. You know, because there's a lot of technological adventures where you're like, I don't understand how a mobile phone works, how your voice comes out one and goes into. So a lot of the technology things, I don't even understand the technology, so I don't fully appreciate the invention. Yeah. But when you see simple inventions and you're like, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's great. Do you write down all your ideas? Do you keep a log of everything? Nah. No. Oh, nah. you must. I'm useless. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to buy you a notepad. Uh, And finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business. Don't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Come on. Only do it. I can't speak. There's a a certain school of people in this business. I think there's two types of people in this business. There is one who could be successful doing anything. There's people who are qualified lawyers who, you know, that's quite a common thing or, or who, you know, also do corporate coaching stuff on the side and things like that and and they'll be successful in whatever field they go into and then there is another which can't do anything else mm-hmm. and I fall into that category of I and that's why I say I'll do this forever because I I can't do I, I just can't do anything else and so 
unless my advice is if you're a person like me, well, you're going to do it because you can't do anything else. But if you've got options, do something else. <laughs> do you do think? Do something where you get cushy holidays and, you know, sick pay and you can have your nights at home. Yeah, and- but that looks magical to you. It doesn't look magical to people with sick days and, and nights yeah, at home. Yeah, but then spend four years out at comedy clubs not getting paid and being out every night of the week yeah. and see how magical a bit of sick pay looks then. Yeah, I think I, I think that uh, I'm often envious of people because I went to uni and went to law school. I didn't mm-hmm. finish my law degree. I started moving into this and friends of mine who went and worked in the law and, you know, went and worked in a firm and stuff and that sense of, Having and a lot of them have moved into writing, TV, that kind of stuff, but they could always go back to a law firm if they wanted. And I always thought just having that ability yeah. to go, oh, well, this yeah. doesn't matter if this works out because I can just go and get a job back you doing what my is, stuff. That is a private school kid who reckons they pack everything in and they go six months away and they're like, I got no job. I barely got enough money to survive. Whoa, I'm <laughs> wild. And you're like, no, you're not. One call to your parents yeah. and you've got you know <laughs> yeah totally yeah there is a sense of instability that comes with this business that can be very difficult to navigate sometimes i think and especially when you are out in the waters and there's not another thing that you well you think there's not another thing you can do and you just have to keep swimming or drown mm. but i think that that's a good kind of energy to have even though it's manic and it fills you with anxiety and you get riddled with fear yeah. it's also the reason you keep swimming and, like, it's the reason you yeah. will survive, but when you're in it and you're paddling, you're just like, oh, my God. But then if you, you know what, if you sat and put your feet up and said it was all sorted and I've got sick pays, you'd be bored to death. I'd be inventing. You, <laughs> you'd be inventing. <laughs> Shoes that are also horns, car horns. No, wait, I'll keep, I'll keep working. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> we need to workshop this. Uh, Tommy, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Corbett, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Tommy Little. I think the poor guy needed a Valium by the end, but I am very grateful that he sat down to chat with me. Next week on the show, I'm going to be talking to journalist Michael Usher. Not only is he an incredibly accomplished journalist, he is also such a nice guy, and he managed to survive through an entire hour and a half of us set up at Channel 7 with him broadcasting live from a mic stand stuck on a tissue box and me with mine on a soup pot that we found in the cupboard of their boardroom. So he is a professional and a trooper and uh, we talk a lot about his time in conflict zones and how after years of being on the road and going into some pretty heavy stories, it can really get to you. I had a couple, you know, without doing the full sob story, but just a couple of events that were just too emotionally draining. Mm. And the one um, particularly, and we were exhausted. We'd been in Athens for weeks and weeks and weeks on end doing the 2004 Olympics. And then that Beslan school siege happened in southern um, Ossetia in Russia. And I just flew straight there. I mean, it was so in Athens, London, London, Moscow, Moscow, down to southern Ossetia when the siege was sort of unfolding. And that was just terrific because it was, number one, I was exhausted. Secondly... So emotionally, I was, you know, drained and on edge. And then suddenly these school children were being slaughtered all around us. And this gymnasium was being blown up by these Chechen rebels. And it was very, very, nothing was hidden. Like they were dragging the bodies out and the grief in that town was exposed and raw. And at night there was wailing and they had a very quick process of burying the kids down there. So 
it was a, a form of Muslim religion they follow down there. So it was all sort of buried the kids within 24 hours of them being killed. Mm. And all of those kids were dressed in their finest. It was a very proud country town when they went to school that day. So in their best clothes, it was the first day back of school. And over the summer break, the rebels had rigged the gymnasium with explosives and uh, weaponry and all sorts of things. Mm. And slaughtered them. And then overnight, you know, people were dragging these little children in their best clothes, bloodied and massacred into their lounge rooms where they held the body on a table or the lounge for then visiting family and relatives. And then they carried them through the streets exposed and had to make a new cemetery within hours to accommodate all these dead um, kids and teachers and some parents. Um, you don't want to be exposed to that sort of non-stop. I hope you'll join me for that chat next week. It's a really interesting look into the emotional toll that can result from years of that kind of reporting. And Michael is just a gem of a bloke. So hopefully I'll see you next week. <laughs> 